Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Modern minds see the Bible as ancient myth. Water can't turn to blood. Frogs from heaven? A wall of water? That's impossible. This summer, discover the science behind the scripture. All right, what's up, Morristown? I want to welcome you guys back to our, uh, yeah, okay, well, we're going to go with that way, okay? Hey, good to see you guys. Glad you're here uh, today. Uh, this series, Exodus Unlocked, in which we're talking about uh, a look, really, at the science behind the Scripture. The main idea being, our premise is, that the Bible, faith, and science, rationality, are not in conflict, as a lot of modern minds tend to think. Um, just a, a disclaimer to start orient ourselves. In our culture, we tend to make it a kind of an either-or proposition when it comes to faith and in science. You can either be a person of reason which values, you know, data and hard logic, or you could be a person of faith, which is maybe a little bit more superstitious, a a belief in something that can't be seen or proved. And uh, we're suggesting a third way, that the idea that actually uh, it's not either or, but the Bible's actually a matter of both and. What if science and scripture are actually telling the same story, the genius of the and? And to illustrate that, last week we examined the Exodus, just to bring you up to date. That was the biblical account of God leading his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And according to the Bible, God sent Moses, right? He told Pharaoh to uh, let the Israelites go free. They were oppressed. Slave labor actually building Pharaoh's empire and uh, undergoing great suffering. And Pharaoh, if you remember, had this famous refusal. He said, who's the Lord? I'm God around these parts. And scripture records how God unleashed, as a result, 10 devastating plagues on the land, beginning with the Nile River, turning to blood. And we looked at um, this one possible scientific theory behind that phenomena. We said, you know what? Fresh water turning blood red is not without modern precedent. In fact, in 1986, about 30 years ago, a similar thing happened in Lake Neos, Cameroon, where a large clear water, crystal blue lake suddenly turned blood red in a matter of moments. And what happened in that modern phenomena is that underground gas leaks actually of iron oxide were released by an earthquake. And when it hit the water, it oxidized or it turned to rust. A reddish cloud kind of fouled the entire lake. And scientists say if a similar phenomena happened in Egypt, a lack of oxygen in the water would have instantly killed all the fish, every living thing that swims in the Nile, except, of course, for the creatures who could uh, hop out. That would be frogs, plague number two. Egypt had a sudden frog infestation, and not surprisingly, with piles of frogs and dead, decaying, stagnant fish, you had flies, plagues number three and four. And we were looking at this idea that maybe the Bible is actually describing a chain reaction, kind of a a domino effect, where one natural phenomena leads to the next. As flies swarmed over Egypt, the, uh, the germs there would have become airborne, and not surprisingly, an epidemic breaks out, killing all the livestock. All the cows of the Egyptians suddenly die. Most likely that's anthrax, scientists say. Plague number five, biological warfare. And it moves from cattle and bulls over to men and women. Boils break out 
on the Egyptians. And we were like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this the hand of God or is it an act of nature? What if it's both? Again, there's a modern parallel, particularly with the boils. If you go back to Lake Neos in 1986, at the time, people living by the lake developed boils and burns over much of their skin. It turns out the carbon dioxide released by the lake um, put the people in a type of coma, reducing circulation to their skin, causing the kinds of boils that actually are described in the Bible as plague number six. And this is kind of a gruesome contemporary corollary to what we see described 3,500 years ago. Now, again, this is scientific theory. Theory means it's a hypothesis, it's a possibility, a, a natural explanation of really supernatural phenomena that is recorded here. Scripture is describing something to us that's supernatural. In other words, it's caused by God, but it's quite possible within the realm of nature. The Greek word for plague actually means blow, like to strike or to smack. And the Bible says that each of these, these plagues or blows were from God himself against Pharaoh to shake his people, the Hebrews, free. That's the spiritual significance of this ancient account. Now, here's the deal. Whether or not it happened precisely this way, or even somehow completely different, is not the point. The big idea isn't that science somehow invalidates Scripture, but rather confirms it in an incredible way. The miracles that we read about aren't as implausible as a lot of modern people make them out to be. It's well within God's power and creativity to harness nature in a supernatural way. He's the creator. He set all of nature in motion. And it's possible that God actually doesn't, doesn't suspend the laws of nature, but actually manipulates it to achieve his redemptive purposes. So the goal of our study, I want to be clear about this, is not to explain away our faith, but it's actually to build it up. Because this series is a challenge to two types of people. Those of you who are more rational, you're cerebral. You can't believe something until you see the hard data. You've got to be able to explain it or get your mind around it. But it's also a challenge to those of us who are mystical. Is it possible that God often works supernaturally in the lives of his children through processes that are quite natural? Again, science and scripture, are they more in sync than you or I think? It was interesting. I was talking uh, actually after the uh, first message with a guy um, in our community who was diagnosed with cancer. Um, And when we were fasting way back in Easter, he was praying that God would literally cure his cancer. And uh, what's amazing is his tumors have shrunk to about a centimeter. Just absolutely incredible. And I said, Chris, that's unbelievable. Tell me exactly what you think happened there. He said, well, I was praying and fasting, asking God to heal me. And at the same time, I was changing my diet. I was cutting out sugar and white flour and all those things, he said. In fact, I haven't changed that. He goes, and I, and I think God actually used both of those things. And it was like a light bulb one. He's like, kind of like we're talking about. The idea that actually the supernatural and the natural work together, and it's not either or, it's both and. Is it possible that God is bigger than we think? Because you know what, guys? A fully orbed faith balances both worlds. So let's think a bigger thought than our little boxes we kind of use to keep God manageable or explainable. Now, here's the deal. I need to say this today at the outset. There are obvious limits to this approach, okay? Especially if you take time to read Exodus for yourself, which I strongly encourage you to do this week. Some of you did that after week one. Everything that you read here is not explainable through scientific observation. For instance, the Bible says the water changed into blood. It didn't say it changed colors. So the question would be, is this talking about real blood or actually the color of blood? The Bible says that the livestock, for instance, of the Egyptians died, not the Israelites. So, like, how could an epidemic be that selective? These are questions that, like, defy easy explanation. Even even that ash cloud, remember the idea that Egypt was plunged into darkness, and we said it's possible that was a volcanic ash cloud from Santorini that blanketed Egypt and blotted out the sun. We've seen that happen twice over Europe in the past couple years. 
But that darkness covered the Egyptians, and yet the Israelites had light, according to the Bible. How is that? Why not both? So understand, there's a supernatural selectivity at work here. Without question, God's making a distinction between his chosen people, the Israelites, and their slave masters, the Egyptians. And the point is this, guys. Get this. Science can help us understand these events, how they relate physically. But scripture is the only thing that helps us understand their significance spiritually. Because at the heart of this story is your story. It's an account of how God is heartsick with love for his people. And when he sees them in slavery, in a culture of sin and death, he wants to lead them into freedom in a dramatic way. And he'll go to any means to make that happen. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the, the God of the Israelites, he takes on Pharaoh and leashes these litany of uh, Egyptian gods. And it's amazing um, how he, you know, kind of looks like, I'm Lord of all creation. If you look at every plague, in fact, it's highly symbolic. The Egyptians, for instance, they worshipped Hapi. You know who Hapi was? The god of the Nile River. And even he couldn't prevent his own waters from contamination. The Egyptians worshipped Hathor. Hathor was the crafty cow goddess, actually still worshipped in parts of India and Africa today. And yet Hathor was helpless as the, the livestock just died in droves. And most prominently, they worshipped Ra, the Egyptian sun god, after whom Pharaoh himself was named Ramses. And they could, Ra couldn't even stop darkness from covering the land for three days. So there's a powerful spiritual message going on here, screaming out, these Egyptian nature gods that are impersonal, I'm going to expose them as powerless, and I'm going to humiliate them by my plagues or my blows against them. And, and scripture is emphatic that actually every plague was a decisively, precisely chosen blow from God's arsenal designed to just dismantle this, this Egyptian system of idol worship and free his people, that they could actually have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with the living God. And yet, in spite of that, Exodus 10, 27 says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh actually said to uh, Moses, he said, get out of my sight, don't show up before me again. The day you see my face is the day you will die. And this is chilling, okay? Lesson from Pharaoh. No matter what filter you apply to these events, whether you skew science or scripture, the truth remains this. Pharaoh made up his mind a long time before the plagues began. His heart had been hardened, and he couldn't believe that someone was greater, smarter, and more powerful than he was. And that's a rebuke, okay, to modern minds with all our intellect. At the end of the day, each one of us has a decision to make about God's word. If you're a rational thinker, will you harden your heart Okay, to faith. I'll only believe if I can make sense of everything. You got a three-pound fallen brain. Like a bowl full of gray jello, okay? Mystics make an idol of the miraculous. I'll only obey God if he calls fire down from heaven when reality is God often works through natural means. So for Pharaoh, think about this. Nine major catastrophes ruin his whole nation and it couldn't soften his heart to God. And that's a challenge to us, okay? Let Exodus soften your heart let it kind of open your mind to God's work in your life because he created you with a purpose in Christ to be a fully forgiven, fully free child of God. He calls you out of Egypt to follow him and declare him. He's Lord. He's, he's my savior. So the story of Exodus is the story of all of us. So take a tip from Pharaoh, basically. Don't wait for tragedy to drive you to God. Open your mind and soften your heart to his presence, all right? Now, today, we're going to focus on plague number 10, because that is the final blow 
that makes Pharaoh cry uncle. And again, this has a thoroughly modern application. So let's do this. Open your Bible to Exodus chapter 11. It's on page 47. And uh, you'll see God tells Moses, I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he's going to let you go from here. But when he does, he will drive you out completely. And this final plague in uh, chapter 11 and 12, that the death of the firstborn son has defied any rational explanation really through, through the ages. So let's read the specifics together, starting at verse 4. It says this. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl, who's at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be, Again, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And this, this is kind of a knockout punch. This is the plague that was meant to be kind of the, the death blow to Pharaoh's heart. How come? In Egypt, as in most ancient cultures, the firstborn son had a privileged position that nobody else enjoyed. Not only was the oldest son heir to the throne... He was first in line for the inheritance. He would inherit a family's property, their titles, everything. So the idea that the firstborn son in every Egyptian family will die is God's threat, and I'm going to cut down Pharaoh's line. An entire generation is going to get wiped out if you refuse to let my people go. In contrast, verse 7 says there'll be no death among the Israelites, the Jews. Their children will be spared. And he says, then you'll know. The Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So God's making a distinction here between the the two people, but how does he do it? This is where the tradition of the Jewish Passover begins. If you read a little bit further in chapter 12, God tells his people, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb, a year-old lamb from your flock and sacrifice it. I actually want you to take, most of them were shepherds. I want you to take the best lamb you have and kill it and eat it as a last meal before your exodus, your journey out of Egypt. But as a final step, God told the Hebrews to take some of the blood, let's read this out loud together, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So I want you to imagine this. Monday morning, you get a message from God, and you're like, oh, okay, sure. And you take your pet lamb out to the the front lawn and slit its neck, and your neighbors just start watching. And I think I'm just going to paint my house in blood today. This will make a good one. Hey, Jack, how you doing? Uh, Everybody's watching, and you're like, dude, what are you doing? And you're smearing blood all over your front door, the door frames, the the signposts, the doorposts. Blood everywhere. Hey, Mary, y'all, see you later for softball. And you're just kind of, rude. What are, you, what are you doing? Oh, God told me to do it. I mean, this was an act of faith. What's the significance here? Watch verse 13. The blood will be a what? A sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will, let's read this together, Liquid Church, all our campuses, big, loud voice, I will pass over you. In other words, the blood is a sign, it's a symbol for the Israelites to be spared from dying from this plague, a perfect lamb has to be killed, a a sacrifice. They have to shed innocent blood. In other words, the lamb's a substitute for the person who would have died 
by the plague. The kid in behind the door, he would have died. But I'm going to put blood of a lamb over this, and now he's going to live. That lamb dies in its place. And it's from this moment on, this moment, that the Hebrew people came to understand for their life to be spared, an innocent life had to be taken, had to die in their place. Do you see where this is going? So the Israelites, they follow God's word. They shed the lamb's blood, believing in faith that when God looked down and saw the blood, he'd pass over them in judgment. This is where the Jewish Passover originates. Incredibly, Exodus says that when the clock struck 12, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Now what in the world is going on here? I mean, scientifically, how could this happen? One group of people dies, not the other. Spiritually, what does this mean? Let's start with the science. For centuries, scholars have really struggled to come up with any plausible scenario that could help us understand how, you know, one group of people suddenly dies in their sleep while another just remains unaffected. They say, well, maybe this is that, you know, legend, legendary, you know, the angel of death in Jewish tradition who kind of wreaks havoc in the village. But again, it was the 1986 disaster at Lake Neos that helped connect some possible dots. What was most significant about Lake Neos was not just that the water suddenly turned blood red, but that the morning after the phenomena, more than 1,700 people in the surrounding villages were discovered dead in their beds. In fact, it wasn't just small children, but the fields were littered with, with dead cattle across the fields in Cameroon surrounding the lake, as you see in the picture here. This appeared in Time Magazine, the BBC, science journals all over the world. And the question is, what happened? What caused all this death? Apparently, that same gas leak that turned the lake blood red began building until the carbon dioxide suddenly released into the atmosphere. And CO2, it's heavier than air, would have rolled out low to the ground, suffocating everything in its wake until it dissipated. Does that sound fantastic to you? Simka Yakubovich, the investigative journalist who documented the disaster, explains. On the fateful night of August 21st, the villagers at Neos went to sleep. They couldn't have known that the carbon dioxide gas, which had turned the lake blood red, was now reaching a critical point. As the people of Lake Neos slept, the top of the lake was keeping the carbon down like a cap on a pop bottle. But then, the earth rumbled and a landslide took place, sending rock into the water, disturbing the surface pressure and releasing the gas. The gas then rose to the surface and like some alien monster emerged from the water, droplets forming on it, turning the invisible gas into a visible fog. The fog then rolled across the water and across the land suffocating everything in its path. And as suddenly as it appeared, it disappeared, dissolving harmlessly into the atmosphere. The next day, 
Those who had been sleeping on higher ground woke up to find some 1,800 people dead. Hundreds of cattle and small animals also dead. All around, there was deathly silence. I was sitting, just sitting among the dead people. Inside the house, some of them were outside. Animals everywhere, lying, cows, dogs, everything. All the family, we were 56, but 53 died. It's incredible. 1,800 people silently suffocated in their sleep. Now, that is a natural calamity that it's imagine, try and imagine the, the heartache and the tragedy, people trying to understand this. This was 1986. You, you can go home and, and Google Cameroon Killer Lake. You can geek out in the science, read all the articles. But that disaster took the lives of almost 2,000 villagers in that part of Western Africa. That's where the, the term Killer Lake was first coined. Time Magazine reported it this way. It said, the only warning was a nocturnal rumble that resembled distant thunder, then a silent plume of colorless gas shot up from the turbulent depths of Lake Neos just inside Cameroon's northwest border. Within minutes, the heavy fumes of carbon dioxide burst over the rim and sank into the valley below, enveloping sleepy hamlets in a deadly bubble. Villagers who had already bedded down for the night quietly suffocated in their sleep. Poison gas. Asphyxiation. The carbon monoxide literally smothered them as they slept. Now, that is a compelling contemporary corollary. But you still may say, well, how does that explain the death of the Egyptian, you know, firstborn males and not the Israel ones? That's 3,500 years ago. Again, as heirs to the throne, Egyptian males had a privileged position. Think this through. And archaeologists tell us that they slept on Egyptian beds like this one that, notice, were very low to the ground. And as first in line to the family fortune, the firstborn slept in that bed alongside their parents' bed, low to the floor. Where did their brothers and sisters sleep? Up on the roof, in wagons, in sheds even, outside the house. So when that carbon dioxide rolled in, heavier than air, it comes along the ground floor like a mist, that fog smothering children sleeping closest to the ground, which also explains why hundreds of cattle and livestock died as well. The question is, well, why weren't the Israelite children affected by the plague? At midnight, what were the Hebrew families doing? Sleeping? They weren't sleeping in their beds. They're sitting at their table, eating the Passover meal. They're sitting upright. In fact, God gave them a specific command about the meal. He said, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And here's the deal. Eat it in haste. Quickly, it is the Lord's what? Passover. In other words, listen, my people. Sit at the table. Get dressed. Get ready to go. Put flip-flops on your feet. Get your walking stick in hand because you are going out of here. And you won't feel a thing as I pass over you and smother your enemy. That's powerful stuff. That God, the, the supernatural creator, could harness and imagine such a, a miraculous deliverance for his people. As the Egyptians had no idea, they were suffocated in their beds and the Lord passed over his people. They felt nothing because they say, we, we're going to believe in faith. We're going to believe in faith that God can save us. We're going to believe in the, in the blood of the lamb that he's going to see that 
and pass over us. Is that remarkable to you? Too much of a stretch? Folks, the more discoveries that scholars and scientists make, the more and more they're discovering science and scripture are saying the same thing. They're telling the same story just from a different vantage point. Geology, archaeology, theology, all of it is God's domain. If he created it, then all of it should point to him. In fact, recently an archaeologist in Egypt named Professor Manfred Bitak, he found mass graves dating back to the Exodus, a grave that contained only young Egyptian males. People said, well, is it because they're soldiers? No. They were young boys who died suddenly and were buried quickly. Here you see bones of burials from the early 18th dynasty. They are all male victims. By the size of the graves and the number of the individuals in the graves, we think people died in rapid succession. And uh, the individuals were just thrown into the pit, uh, some of them lying on their stomach, some lying on their side. Some of the pits were just uh, 20 centimeters deep and uh, just some dust put on top of them. Again, archaeology, geology, theology, all telling the same story. My question is, why is that such a struggle for so many of us to balance? We, isn't it hard? I think here's why. I think atheists worry that linking scientific evidence to Scripture will somehow confirm the existence of God. We can't have that happen. While believers, on the other hand, worry that scientific theories somehow take God out of the equation. Oh, don't explain it away, Pastor Tim. In the book of Exodus, both are in sync. And that balance, guys, should strengthen your faith. It should buttress it. You should say, oh my goodness, look at God. God doesn't doesn't just suspend nature and just does random stuff. He manipulates it so we can see his power unto salvation. He saves people through the blood of the lamb. He tells his people, I want you to believe me. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you my word, and I want you to believe me that this is the doorway to life. Follow me, trust me. Guys, this is what gives faith its power in the natural world. We call it a miracle because by definition, a miracle is not ordinary. It's extraordinary. It's a phenomenon. And God's word describes a sequence of 10 miracles that point to his power to save his people. So get this. Science can help us understand how this may have happened, but only scripture tells us what it means. And this is what I don't want you to miss. Whether you are Jewish, whether you are Christian, you're agnostic, you're a fighting fundamentalist, you, you can't avoid the explicit spiritual meaning of the blood on the doorpost. Again, this is the key to understanding the Exodus because, guys, this is the symbol of how God saved his people 3,000 years ago. And you know what? It remains the same key to understanding how he secured our salvation 3,000 years later. See, in the Old Testament, Passover was God's way of introducing the sacrificial system. He wanted to illustrate the truth that, you know what? Something innocent has to die in order to save life. If I'm going to save something, then the blood, blood, what's blood? It's a symbol of life. Blood's got to be spilled. Life can only be preserved through death. And when the Hebrews slaughtered the Passover lamb, God told them, take some of that blood Put it on the sides and tops of the door frames. And what did it symbolize? Can we just read verse 13 together? It says, the blood will be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over you. In other words, this is a sign 
that life comes only through death. For you to be spared, a perfect lamb has to die. A spotless lamb has to be a sacrifice. It's a substitute for everything else that would have died in the plague. So slap its blood on all of it. That's why the Jewish tradition from this moment on, this was the first sacrifice. For the rest of the Old Testament, the Jews understood we have to sacrifice an animal to take away our sin. And from here on out, the Hebrews slaughtered sheep, goats, bulls, rams. They would sprinkle their blood all over, believing that when God saw the blood, he's going to pass over them. But in the New Testament... The Apostle Paul says something new happened. That death of the Passover lamb in Exodus was fulfilled once and for all through Jesus Christ. He said, Christ, our what? Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In other words, God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, comes to this earth for one reason. So that God will pass over our sin. The Bible says Christ was without sin. He was pure. He was the spotless, blemishless, God's firstborn son. And because of that, when Jesus died on that cross, his blood was pure. And God saw his sacrifice. And because God looks down and sees Jesus' sacrifice in our place, he passes over our sin. The truth, guys, I've been telling you this. The story of Exodus is the story of all of us. Each of us is born into Egypt. We're born into slavery. We're enslaved to our habits, our addictions, what the Bible calls sin, systemic brokenness. And you know what? It's not a physical Egypt. It's a spiritual one. And the Bible says you're literally born into slavery. Egypt was literally a nation of false gods. It was a nation of idols. That's why you have all these symbols of all these idols. It was all about idol worship. And that's what sin is. It's idol worship. It's believing, trusting something else to save us. Now look, we don't worship a river. But how about our money, <laughs> our careers, our cars, whatever? We don't worship the sun, but how about our own intellect? I can think myself out of this. We put all sorts of things in our life ahead of God. Take relationships, for instance. <laughs> and when calamity hits, it can make us better or it can drive us deeper in our belief. I have a friend in this church who recently became a Christian. Incredible story. His girlfriend was actually a believer. Brought him to church. He accepted Christ on Easter. Just powerful thing, okay? And that's, I'm not saying missionary dating, yay, but it's an amazing thing, okay? <laughs> it's great. But, but this summer, his girlfriend broke up with him. Whoa. And he kind of had a crisis of faith. Like, do, do I really believe this about Jesus? Or do I, did I believe that just for her? See, a crisis like that can either make you bitter or it can make you believe. It can actually deepen your faith. Fortunately for him, I was talking to him the other week. He literally was like, Tim, it, it confirms for me. That wasn't just feeling. I have a relationship with Christ, and he's the one who will never leave me or forsake me now. That's the one I'm trusting in. I'm not trusting her for salvation. I'm trusting Jesus for salvation. If you make your relationship your idol, you put all your self-worth into someone else, what happens when you break up? You get bitter. If you derive your identity from your job, what happens when you lose it? You get bitter. At the Passover, the Israelites, you know what they also ate? bitter herbs as a symbol of the bitterness of slavery. In other words, we all have our idols. We're all slaves to sin. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. Folks, this is why Jesus died on the cross. Amen? It's a blood sacrifice for you, for me. And without him, we're still stuck in Egypt. We're like Pharaoh with these hardened, stubborn hearts 
that neither repent nor believe and God's wrath stays on us. But because of Christ, God looks down on you and instead of seeing your sin, he sees his son's precious blood and he says, come through. I'm going to save your life now and for eternity. We get a relationship with God that's no longer plagued. <laughs> in, in sending Jesus, we get eternal life and, and we're set free from sin and death and we literally are empowered to live a new kind of life with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In fact, when Jesus first appeared, well, why am I making a mess here? My goodness, you people. You know what? I'm not going to wear the jeans again. Let's just do it. <laughs> Sorry, man, we're just going there. This is, yeah, that's a sacrificial system right there. In fact, I think I'm going to run out in the middle of Speedwell Avenue. Ah! Ah! <laughs> that's great, man. That'll stop some traffic right there. Ah. That's great. I'm just going to Times Square. When Jesus first appeared in the New Testament, do you know what John the Baptist said? He said, look, it's the Lamb of God who what? Read it, liquid. Takes away the sin of the world. Do you see the connection between the old and the new? That's the spiritual significance of the Passover. With Christ, you get Passover. If his blood didn't cover you, you'd still be in Egypt with all your pride and your sin and your disbelief under judgment like Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But when Christ was sacrificed once and for all, now anybody can be forgiven by the blood of the lamb. He died so you live. Over 3,000 years later, Jesus Christ is our Passover. Amen? Guys, this is why we believe what we believe. This has been going on for thousands of years. This, this is why we celebrate communion what Christians call the Lord's Suppers. Have you ever wondered, by the way, when we do that, when we celebrate communion, wh where this tradition comes from? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he called all of his Jewish disciples together to celebrate what? The Passover meal. In other words, Exodus was the last thing on Jesus' mind before he went to the cross. Only instead of bitter herbs and, and lamb, he took wine and he took unleavened bread and, and, he, and he said, he held the cup, he said, this is my blood. You're gonna, when you drink this, when you have this meal, I want you to remember me because I'm about to give you your walking papers. This is what it cost me. This is what it's going to cost me to forgive your sin. So every time you drink it, understand, it's my blood. And he took the, he took the bread and he said, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you, my life for yours. So the Father passes over. And with those words... This ancient Passover celebration was transformed. Jesus gave it a new meaning. He fulfilled it with his life. So when we come forward to receive communion, you know what this is literally saying? I believe. I believe Jesus is my Passover. I am trusting his blood to cover my sin and save my life. Can you say that? More importantly, do you believe that? Do you believe it in your heart? Or is it hard like Pharaoh? That's a question only you can answer. We all need a Passover. I want you to think about what it took Pharaoh to finally believe God. <laughs> Every plague left his nation in shambles. Maybe your life is in shambles. Pharaoh's house was a disaster zone, but it wasn't the plagues. It wasn't the boils. It wasn't the frogs that moved him. What cracked his stubborn heart wide open? The death of his firstborn son. And he said, I surrender. I believe in the one true God. You're free to go. Folks, we're like Pharaoh. We're stubborn in heart. 
and we're slow to believe. Every one, two, three, ten blows to the head. How many times does some of you need to get smacked in the face before you finally humble yourself and believe? What's it going to take? How gruesome does it have to get? It was when Pharaoh lost his firstborn son that he finally repented and said, I believe. What's it going to take for you? The father sent his firstborn son to die for you. This is so you could live. And that was to show you his love. When Pharaoh wept for his son, how do you think the father in heaven wept when Jesus, his son, was nailed to the cross? The perfect father-son relationship severed out of love for you. I guess God must really think you're worth it. I mean, if that's what it took for Pharaoh to believe, finally, my question is, what will it take for you to believe and receive God's gift? Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He shed his blood for you guys. You may not feel it right now, but his, his banner, the Old Testament says, his banner over you is love. And God wants you to soften your heart and put your faith in Jesus Christ today. If you can't point to a moment in your life when you did that, guys, I can't think of a better moment than now, okay? We all need a Passover, every single one of us. You do, I do, every single man and woman, and Christ is your Passover. He died so you don't have to live in fear and anxiety and shame and idolatry and pride anymore. He literally wants you to leave your old life out of Egypt and walk through the door. So here's the deal. All of our campuses, we're going to celebrate communion right now. I want you to know this. As you come forward, what you're about to do has been celebrated since the beginning of time for thousands and thousands of years, dating back to the Exodus. After the Jews left Egypt, God instructed every generation to celebrate the Passover meal to remember the lengths God went through to save them. And Passover, in Jewish thought, isn't like just remembering the Exodus. Oh, I remember that thing happened. It was participating in it. People would literally sit at the table. We're leaving Egypt tonight. So when we have the Lord's Supper, it's not just remembering, oh, Jesus died for me. You're participating in it. You're saying, that was my sin. That's my sin. That's my life. That mess is what nailed Jesus to the cross. And yet his arms are open wide in love for me. you're, 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 You're there. There's an immediacy. So here's the deal. Scripture tells us to actually inspect ourselves. Look into your heart before you receive communion. Yeah? Confess your sin to God. What areas of your life right now, we're going to take time for you to talk to God, need cleansing by his blood. I'm going to give you time to talk to, to God before you come forward to receive the cup and the juice. Look at the blood over the store, guys. That's the heart of God. <laughs> that's, what the, that's, that's what God did to save you. So take some time right now, re- not just remember your past, but confess your present sin, ask Christ to apply his forgiveness to your life in a personal way. Don't approach the table like casually, like, oh, okay, I'm going to pop this in and I'm just going to walk out. <laughs> if you're, and here's the deal. If you're not a believer, that's okay. We are so glad you are here. This is a gift that you'd be here. You probably think I'm nuts. The guy's like smearing blood all over him. I get that. I get that. But out of respect for the deep significance of, of this, we ask you to pass on communion. In other words, when others come up, you can come up, but just walk through the line. Don't, don't take it. Because this is for people who are saying, that's what I'm banking my life on. (laughs) This is, it's not my life. I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. 
I'm banking everything on it, okay? So if you've uh, never asked Christ to be your Savior, by all means, this is a great moment to do it. You talk to God, I can't think of a better moment for you to enter, walk through that door, leave Egypt, and enter the family of faith forever, okay, guys? Then you come up and receive communion. Um, this could be a powerful moment. So let's just take a moment. All our campuses will bow our heads. I'll give you some time. I'll, I'll pray for us, and then you can do business with God. Father, we just, uh, we thank you right now. Powerful God, powerful moment, holy moment right now. I thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your son, for his body broken and his blood shed for me. Jesus, thank you for being the Passover for Tim Lucas. Lord, I confess my sin to you right now. There's plenty of it from this past week. I ask you to cleanse it and forgive it. Would you renew my heart by your spirit? Lord, these are your people. Hear their prayers right now as they confess to you, as they speak with you. Let them share their heart. If you've never put your faith in Christ before, you can do that right now. You can just simply say, Jesus, I believe you. I need you. Come into my heart. Cleanse my sin. Take it away. And give me your spirit. Only God can gauge the sincerity of your heart. You pray that prayer right now, and then you come forward for communion with the rest of your new family. God, right now, hear the prayers of your people. Thanks for this holy moment. Thank you for what we're about to partake in. Thank you for the exodus, for our exodus. In the name of Jesus, our Passover lamb, all God's people said together. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com. Or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.